We're going to read the text tonight, the full text. I'm going to make some comments. We're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll begin. Um, John chapter 1, verse 35 through 51. Look at verse 35 with me. It says, again the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. The next day being the day after, John saw the Spirit descend from heaven and rest upon Jesus, and he recognized, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the last message we learned uh, back in November 22nd. Verse 36, And looking looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. So just some notes on that. Um, Jesus is walking down after John the Baptist points to Jesus. I mean, that, that was his whole purpose, right? His whole ministry was to point to Jesus. He says, There he is. Behold the Lamb of God. And he has his two followers. John has his two followers. One of them we know is Andrew. The other one we speculate is John, the one who's writing it. Not John the Baptist, John the Evangelist, who's writing this. And so we know that because, um, well, we figure that because he has all these details. He knows it's the 10th hour, um, all these different things. So it makes it seem like it would just make sense if it was him. So Jesus turns around, sees these two disciples following after him, and asks, what do you seek? And then they said... They didn't tell him what they, they're seeking or anything like that. What they said is, Rabbi, where are you staying? It's kind of creepy if you think about it. It's like, so where are you staying? No, it's not like that at all. Actually, what happens is this was a context in which uh, disciples who wanted to study under someone would ask a question like that to see if they could have a, a sit down with him. It's kind of like if you ever see Pastor Lloyd on a Sunday. I mean, we got a pretty big church. If you wanted to ask Pastor Lloyd a question, you might ask him in the foyer. But if you really want to get to know Pastor Lloyd, you can't just see him in the foyer. You'll never have time with him. So you ask him out to lunch. Hey, Pastor Lloyd, would you want to get lunch sometime? Would you like to spend some time with each other so we can ask you deeper questions? And that's kind of what these disciples are doing here. So where are you saying? He says, come and see. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Again, kind of weird. Okay, so here's Peter. Here's Peter. Simon, was that you again or was that me? Okay, just making sure that you're the one making mistakes. (laughs) So, (laughs) sorry, Roy. So kind of weird, here's Peter, who is named Simon. He meets Jesus the first time, and Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to call you something else. I'm going to give you a new name. And he's like, that's kind of strange. You're going to call me something else. You don't normally do that to people. But moving on, verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now this is figurative language. That was kind of a metaphor in the day when they say under the fig tree, it's like you're reading your Bible. So he's basically saying when you were there reading your Bible, I was there and I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. That in reference to Jacob's ladder. If you remember Jacob, um, who became Israel, he was sleeping on a rock, he woke up, saw this vision of these angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He's saying, you will see greater things than these. That you being plural, not just him, but us as well. And that's where we're about to get to. Because here in this passage, you have disciples following after Jesus. Jesus calls them out. And the cool thing about this is, you see how it organically happens in a church witnesses see Jesus and they spread the word. Andrew tells his brother, uh, Philip tells Nathaniel. It's a word of mouth. And that's how you hear about Jesus. That's how your friends will hear about Jesus. It's by you inviting someone out to youth group and saying, hey, come and see. And that's how the disciples are made. So let's pray and get into the text tonight. Lord, I pray as we have gathered here for one purpose. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in a mighty way. Lord, show us how to make good decisions. Lord, show us what it means to follow after you. And show us, Lord, what we find when we find our rest in you. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to hearts. You'd cut us to the very bone and marrow tonight. Lord, that you'd show us new things about ourselves, about others, and about our mission and our place here on this earth. Fill us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. What do you think is the best decision you could ever make? I mean, if I just think about it and I just joke around about it, I would say it's buying my coat that was like 300 bucks. You know, North Face jackets are pretty expensive. And for a long time, I was like, I'm not going to buy those jackets because they're really expensive, 300 bucks. But after I bought it, I felt the warmth. And the durability, and this is bad. This is like an advertisement for North Face. That's not what I'm doing. And don't ask your parents for a North Face jacket for Christmas because I talked about it in a message. That's very bad. But once I saw the durability, I was like, this is a good decision. Even though it was risky to, sp to spend a lot of money, it was a good investment. I remember waking up one morning, going on my computer, and I saw the quick check competition, uh, you know, to make your own sub. And right as I saw it, I was like, I need to enter this right now. Many of you guys remember you were there with me when I won the competition. I like had everyone vote in the youth group. I totally like milked that and like everyone showed up to the competition and we won. My face got on the billboard, it's pretty cool. And that was a good decision, right? Because I woke up, I was like, I know I can do this. I can beat these people and we, we can make this happen together. And so it happened. Now, let me ask you something. What makes something a bad decision? Raise your hand. What, what makes something a bad decision? The consequences. Yes. What, what do you mean consequences? 
in a negative sense, yeah. The results. If you have bad results of your decision, you think it's a bad decision. If you're buying flowers for a girl that you like, hopefully not for a guy, you know, girls, you're not buying flowers for guys, that's weird. But if you're buying flowers for a girl that you like, you give it to her and she doesn't like you, wow, bad decision. Because now it's really awkward, especially if you do it in front of all your friends at church and then they question you later. Okay, keep moving. <laughs> bad decision. Another bad decision. Once upon a time, Andy Dean on a winter retreat. I don't think any of you guys remember this. Um, Andy's crazy. He gets dared by the guest speaker to put his face in a bath of nacho cheese when we have our snack time at the, the winter retreat or whatever. So Andy's like, yeah, I'm daring. I'm still single. Okay, I'm going to do it. So he puts his head in a bath of cheese and it looks totally gross, whatever. But then the staff comes out to take away the items and they put saran wrap over it. Now, if you put saran wrap over a tin full of cheese, what does that mean? You're gonna reuse it. So what do we have for lunch the next day? Turned out to be ham sandwiches that were really dry and what they needed was some nacho cheese. <laughs> and so there's like three people that didn't eat these ham sandwiches. It was like me, Andy, and, and the guest speaker. Bad decision because you have bad consequences. But no one got sick and no one died, so it's okay. But very importantly, uh, because we fear bad decisions, we'll avoid risks. So you won't give the girl flowers because you're afraid of rejection. So you'll send her a flower emoticon because that doesn't have any risks to it. She can reject the emoticon and no one makes fun of you. Or your parents will tell you when you want to, you know, my parents told me and a lot of people have told me if you want to go into acting, have a backup for your career um, in case it doesn't work out. You need a backup, a fallback plan so that you don't make a bad decision with this risk. And in the same way, in a Christian sense, many of us won't go evangelizing because you fear the risk of what if I get rejected? What if I get persecuted? What if, what if, what if? You're always asking what if, and it keeps you from making a decision that might cost you a lot, but bring you a lot in life. But what if you can make a decision with the guarantee that it would be a success? What if you were told you can make the best decision right now, tonight, 2013, 12, 13, Friday the 13th, you know, probably a bad day to be here, but you can make the best decision tonight, guaranteed. Would you make it? The best decision you could ever make is to unreservedly follow Jesus, to hold no bars back, to, to fully commit yourself to Jesus. Why? Because it's based on a perfect leader who loves you. You have the guarantee that Jesus loves you, that he's for you. So if you commit yourself to following him, it's the best decision you could ever make. God doesn't make decisions like we do. Job chapter 23 verse 13 says, But once he has made his decision, who can change his mind? Whatever he wants to do, he does. God doesn't make half-hearted decisions. He's not like, well, I don't know. I'm, I think I'm going to send Jesus into the world and I hope it works out. He doesn't have regrets in that kind of a sense. 
where he does something, he's like, oh, why did I? That's just so dumb of me. I, I really should have done something else. Because God is all-knowing. He knows all the future possibilities. So when Jesus sends, uh, when God sends Jesus into the world, he knows exactly what's going to happen with the results. So if God chooses you to be on his team, he knows exactly what he can do through your life. When Jesus calls his disciples, he knew exactly who he was calling. Even if they rejected him, even if they betrayed him, he knew exactly what he was doing. If God is calling you here tonight, you have the opportunity to make the best decision you could ever make in your entire life. Why? Because following Christ means that you're following a leader who doesn't make mistakes. Following Jesus is the best decision you can make because it's based on a leader that does not make mistakes. He's infallible. And the, the way that he walks is righteousness. It's perfect. Look at verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with his two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? You see, these disciples, Andrew and possibly John, had a choice. Do I stay with John the Baptist or do I follow Jesus? They were perfectly fine. They were disciples of John. This is great. But their whole point was to be directed towards Christ. And you think, it's well, of course they're going to fall after Jesus. I mean, that's the whole point of them following John the Baptist in the first place. But if you think about it, if you really take time to just sit down and think about it, you like ponder the Bible. In our own lives, don't we become satisfied with the ideas about God and don't pursue a relationship with God. Don't we do the exact same thing? You're satisfied coming to church, hearing, behold, the Lamb of God. You hear the promises of God. You hear Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, thoughts of peace and not of evil to, uh, to give you a future and a hope. And you're like, well, that sounds great. And you don't put it into practice because you don't pursue a relationship. We do the exact same thing when we're satisfied with the ideas about God and not the relationship with God. You see, action means discipleship when you're following after Jesus. It means putting yourself under his lordship and saying, Lord, I want you to be literally the director, the leader of my entire life. Now, if you don't do that, you just come to church and you hear these words and you hear the Bible and you sit down and you're like, whatever. You're not really having the full relationship with Jesus. You're not having the full experience. That's religiosity. That's religion by its definition. It's like marriage without romance. You just come to church. You're committed. You're doing it. It's like you're, you're married to this person, all right? And you don't actually spend time with the person because it's just a commitment. It's dead. It's boring. You just go to church. Whatever happens, happens. Well, if God speaks to me, whatever, I'm not really expecting him to speak to me because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Why is there no action? Why is it that people persist in their sins? They keep on doing what they're doing. They're satisfied living one way in church, living one way in the world. Why is there no action? Well, Jesus asks these people, the two disciples, a question that challenges their true motives. He doesn't want them to be those people that just are satisfied with ideas. He wants to make sure they're committed. So he asks them the question. What's that question? Look at verse 38. What do you seek? What do you seek? Modern day translation. 
what do you really want in life? Why is there no action? Well, what do you really want in life? You guys, it's the Christmas season. You're thinking about presents. You're thinking about what people really want at this time of year. Sometimes you can buy for them. Sometimes you can afford it. Sometimes you can't. Tim Chaddock once said, he's a pastor in California. The course of your life is determined by the source of your life. What are you feeding inside of yourself? Because the course of your life is determined by the source of your life. The Bible says in John chapter, or 1 John 3, 15 through 17, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But any, anyone that does what pleases God will live forever. You see, that's why Jesus said, don't lay up treasures on earth. Don't put your treasure here on this earth where everything it gets destroyed where moths and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up your treasure in heaven where it's safe. Put your deposit where it counts. If you're investing in the things of this world, you love the things of this world, it's all going to pass away. You're going to be the person that hoards up so much stuff for himself and can't take it with him to heaven. And so he's left alone. Here's an objection though. Many people say, well, I want to live for the moment. I want to have fun. I just want to do what feels good in the moment. I want to go party. I want to drink. I want to have sex. I want to do these. I want a relationship. You do all these things, but then what? Then what? Well, I, I live for the moment, so I just take it as it comes, I guess. Jim Carrey, many of you know the famous actor, he said this. I wish everyone would get rich and famous in everything they ever dreamed of so that they would know it's not the answer. Not even a Christian. He admits it's not the answer. Pay attention to this. This is very important. Living for the moment, living for the moment, really just means that there's no particular moment worth living for. If you believe in living for the moment, that just means that you don't believe that there's any particular moment worth living for. Think about athletes. Now, athletes discipline themselves. They sacrifice things. They don't eat certain foods. They train themselves every single day for what? One moment, one race, one fight, one swim. Anything that they can do that really matters to them. They're focusing and they'll sacrifice because they believe that one moment is worth living for. But a slob eats whatever he wants, lives every day the same just puts into his body whatever he does because he doesn't believe that there's any particular moments worth living for. Living for the moment is living without hope for the future. But to those who genu genuinely desire a future and a hope, those that are tired of this world, you know what Jesus says? He says, come and see. Just like he said to the disciples, he's telling you today, you, you're tired of this world, you're tired of living day by day the same thing and nothing ever gets better, you have nothing to look forward to in life, come and see, follow him. In this chapter, what we see is we have four different people found four different things when they found Jesus. Four different people, four different things, and, and I almost said four different Jesuses, and that's completely wrong. <laughs> they found four different things when they found Jesus. 
The first one was Andrew, and technically the other guy, John. But Andrew found the Messiah. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Andrew found the Messiah. We see that in verse 36 when John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And this was very familiar language to the Jewish people because they were constantly reminded of, the, of their sins. Every single you know, day, they were reminded by the sacrifices that they'd have to do. They'd have to put their hand on the lamb as you sacrifice it. And we in our day have largely bought the lie that we're all basically good people. I mean, does anyone actually believe that they're a bad person? No, not today because they're like, well, I don't do any, I'm not like that person. I'm a basically good person. And we all believe that. And we believe that everyone else is a basically good person. Well, why is that person being on trial? Why is that person being hurt? They're a basically good person just like me. We say that until you see evil in the world, right? As soon as you see people uh, shoot people, as soon as you see people like Hitler and, and all these terrible people, then you're like, well, okay, here's a problem because there's evil in the world. This is shocking to many people. But if there's evil in the world and you're a basically good person, where do you draw the line? Because now you're forced to, right? Everyone's not a basically good person. So some people are evil. Where do you draw the line? And what we find is people draw the line between good and evil based on the measure they find inside themselves. People say, that person's evil. I'm not evil. So at least I'm better than that person. That's what happens. In our day, we're becoming these, these critics. We're feeding to our egos because I'm a basically good person and there's evil in the world. So as long as I'm better than most people, I'm a good person. But the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Everyone sinned. And the concept of sin, just so you know, sin is an archery term in the Greek. So they would understand this to be, if you're shooting at a target, you miss the target, even by a little bit, it sinned. Your arrow sinned. It missed the mark. So even a little bit of de deviation is sin. And in the same way, it doesn't matter how good or how, how unlike the world you are. The question is not how unlike the world you are. It's are you like Christ? Are you like Jesus? Are you like the standard of perfection itself? Here's the problem. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible also says in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam sinned, he messed up for all of us, and because of that, people started dying. And then you ask, well, why? Why are people dying? That's messed up. Why is God letting people die just because they sinned? Like, why is that such a big deal? Well, two reasons. Number one, if there was no death, there would be no punishment for sin. So we need to realize, first of all, that it's necessary that we have death because our sin is so bad. And secondly, the reason that there's death is it's an act of God's mercy. Death is actually an act of God's mercy to allow us to die. Why? Because it means a chance for redemption. If there's no death, there's no resurrection. That means you would be stuck in your sins forever. You'd be like a demon in hell that, that sins once and they're forever stuck because they don't die. But God, in allowing us to die, to eat of the fruit and die, allows us to have that chance 
for redemption, to have a new life, to be born again. Isn't that amazing? It's because our God's pretty, so- pretty, pretty awesome. He thinks these things out. I don't. I'll leave it up to him. So we all sin. Sin leads to death. What can we do? Well, the world religions would say that your goods should at least outweigh your bads. The good deeds should outweigh your bad deeds. But if you think about that, just take that sentence because everyone says that all the time, right? Well, as long as I've, I've done basically good things, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty set on heaven, right? If you think about that, that means that if you have a murderer, as long as the murderer kills rich people and takes their money and gives it to charity and the charity and saves a lot of lives, it's okay to murder people. Does that sound right? No, because that's not the standard, standard of morality. Only God is. And the second thing that's kind of weird about it is evil is never defeated. If all, all you have to do is have your goods outweigh your bads, evil's never really vanquished from this earth. There's always evil. But God says, I'm going to deal with evil because it's so serious. It hurts so many different people. It's messed up when people die. It's messed up when people cheat each other and, and gossip about each other and murder other people. It's an evil world that we live in. And so God's solution is to, to say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This sacrificial symbol where they, the Jewish people were reminded through the sacrifices, through the brutal killing of these innocent lambs, that one day, because their sin is so serious, one day there would be an innocent lamb that took our place, that came into this world, Jesus Christ himself, who willingly gave himself up in our place so that we wouldn't have to die, so that one day we could be united with him and live forever. Andrew was given a choice. We are given a choice. You have a decision to make. Do I want to follow after Christ? Do I want to follow this Messiah? Or am I trusting myself to save myself? Simon, Simon Peter. The next point is that Simon Peter found a new identity. And we see that in verse 42. Jesus says to Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which means a stone. Cephas, you're probably wondering at this point, why doesn't it say Peter? Peter's Greek. Cephas is uh, Aramaic. So that's why it says, which is translated a stone. So Cephas, Peter, same thing. But names, at least in the Bible, were often prophetic of a person's life. So you have Jacob in the Bible, who is the heel catcher, the trickster. And they would name him something because they saw him pulling his brother's heel to try to get out first. You have Esau, they just saw him like, he's hairy, and his whole life will be hairy. You have Moses, his name means drawn out. And so he was drawn out of the water, but we also know prophetically, he drew the people of, of, of Israel out of Egypt. We have Jesus, his name means God is salvation. And we also have Alan Khan. My name means friendly one. Now, I'm not a biblical character, but, and in fact, when I was little, many of you know this, but, when I was little, I used to pray for friends because, like, I, I was just an awkward kid. <laughs> and then one day, I used to pray every single day, like three years old. One day, there was a little boy just bouncing a ball on the sidewalk, sitting by himself with his head down. And my parents pointed, like, look, God answered your prayers. I was like, thank you, Jesus. I was so happy. We're not friends anymore, but I replaced him with you guys. In 2012, 
There were some terrible names given to babies. You want to hear some? The worst baby names of 2012. Here we go. For girls, we have Disney, Ikea, do a lot of shopping, I guess, and Richard for a girl. I don't know why, you, I, just setting them up for failure. That's all I'm saying. Boys, <laughs> you have Emperor with an O-R. So M-E-M-P-O-R-O-R, Emperor. You have Rambo. <laughs> this is my favorite. Maximum. Maximum Khan. I'm stealing that idea. So we give people nicknames all the time, and it can either be endearing or it can be offensive. You can, ha- you can be dating someone and call them your sugar pie honey bunch and your muffin cakes and all whatever gross things you want to say to them. And can it, be, it can be very endearing, or if you say it to someone who's not your girlfriend, it can be very offensive. Or, on a more serious note, sometimes people call you things. They'll call you names. And you feel like it's, it's a stigma on your life. People will call you things because you've done something. You know, say you're always a liar, you're always a cheater, you're always a gossip. And because they call you those labels, those labels you feel stay with you. Because you'll be talking to different guys. Some people will call you a harlot, not in those words, but you know what I'm talking about. People will call you, uh, you know, they'll say terrible things that you feel are a label on your life. And so some people act in those ways because they've just been called it for so long. You may be here and be known as the person who is the woman caught in adultery, as, as the man who is rich and he turned down everything when God called him to, to count the cost the rich man, all these different labels. But you see, pay attention. This is very important. Everyone look up here. People define you by what you've done, but God defines you by what you become. People define you by what you've done. God defines you by what you become. D.A. Carson put it this way. The significance of this is not so much on what this name means for Simon Peter, but more of Jesus who knows people thoroughly and not only sees into them, but also so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. You see, Jesus saw Peter and says, and his name was Simon. He says, you will be Peter. You are a rock. Maybe, I don't know why he called him a rock. I don't know if he saw something in him. He looks sturdy. We don't really know. But what we do know is it's not important why he called him Peter, it's more that he wanted, him, he wanted to make him a rock. Jesus called something out of Simon Peter. He wanted to make him into the person that he was called to be. So are you tired of how people see you? How people gossip about you? Your reputation, your sin, the thing that you always find yourself doing and you know it's wrong. Are you tired of those things? Well, the Bible promises in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, that God will give to each person a new name that only you know. Only you and God know. A new name, a new identity. And if you follow Christ, you'll be defined by him and not by what you've done because you become like him. As you seek Jesus, you become more like Jesus, and you're defined by him. And that's the only thing that God sees. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
there was a diamond ring that was being sold on auction earlier this year. For, it was estimated to be sell, sold around $20,000. Very expensive ring. But it, what it wound up being sold for was $1 million. Do you know why? It's because it had a name attached to it. Napoleon Bonaparte to Josephine. It was an engagement ring to Josephine. You see, a simple name attached to that ring gave it its value. You also are made in the image of God, and therefore you're precious to him. You are his. You can be running all your life away from God, but God wants you because you were made for him, and you're made in his likeness. And therefore, you are valuable, and you will only find your worth and value when you find him. Because you're, you're, you have his name written all over you. So we also have Philip, the third thing that was found. Philip found evidence of God's word. We see that in verse 45. So Philip goes, and he's called by Jesus. He immediately gets up and follows and then tells Nathaniel, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In our day, the idea of God is being mocked. You have different critics. You have the new atheists, which is, you know, uh, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, these guys that are angry and they're ridiculing. You'll have your friends in school, especially public school, making fun of God and angry about God because they're emulating these guys. And they'll make up these, these, these dumb things like the flying spaghetti monster to make fun of God and say, well, if we can't disprove God, you, can, you can't disprove the idea of the flying spaghetti monster that flies in the universe and is invisible, which is dumb. We can talk about that later. You can disprove that. But deep down inside, it doesn't matter because we all know that there's something out there that's greater than all of us. Deep down inside, we all know. You can hide it. You can shroud it in your mind and be like, well, there is no God. I know there is no God. The Bible says the fool in his heart says there is no God. Not saying that you're dumb, but the person who keeps on saying that verse actually is saying, not the person that doesn't realize there's a God, a person that continually says, there is no God, there is no God, there is no God, because he knows that there is God. Creation itself speaks that there is God. Christianity is not a blind faith. It's not abstract ideas. It's not just this concept like Hinduism or Buddhism. It's like, well, I'm going to think up a religion. Let's think up Christianity. No. But even the book of John says in verse, uh, chapter 20, verse 31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. God doesn't want you to just chuck your mind out the door and blindly believe. He says, fix your eyes on the one who makes blind men see. You guys remember that from the Leap in the Dark video. But it's true. Put your faith in Jesus, who has made a mark in history. Our entire calendar is based on it. Christmas is based on it. Not a fictitious person, not some distant person, but a very real person who acts and lives today. And so we have different arguments for the existence of God. And you guys have heard me talk about a lot in the past. But maybe if you're new here, you don't know him. We have the cosmological argument, which is the argument for the universe. Argument from design. We have argument from morality. You have ontological argument. You have all these different arguments that point to the existence of God that make a cumulative case that there is a God in addition to the resurrection and everything else like that and the historicity of the Bible and, and things like that. But the important thing is that you have to be seeking. That's what Philip did. He was seeking. He was looking for it. And he says, this is the one. That's why he could just get up. It wasn't like Jesus had to convince him, like, I, I'm Jesus and uh, you should follow me. This is before the miracles. Jesus didn't do anything yet. 
he just hopped on the scene. He's like, here I am. And then John the Baptist is like, that's him. And then Philip's like, yep, I'm ready. Here I go. Why? Because he was seeking. He was seeking truth. Are you open to the truth? Are you seeking truth? Do you want to know if this is for real? Do you want to know if God is really out there speaking to people today? If you're seeking, you will find him if you seek him with all of your heart. Scripture says in, in Romans 10, 11, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Philip found evidence of God's word. Finally, Nathaniel found hope. Nathaniel found hope. Actors, musicians, these people that pursue fame move to either Los Angeles or New York City to catch their big break, to find uh, the one uh, agent that's going to discover their talent and, and book them the right show. They, they go to a place that's optimal so that they can be found by these talent agencies and put in the right movie or act or their, get their big break. They do that because there's a greater chance of them being noticed. Now, Nazareth was a small, insignificant town. It had only about 2,000 people. And so what Nathaniel says is, he hears from Philip, hey, Jesus is here. We found him. It's the one we've been waiting for. Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Really? That small, insignificant town. You'd expect it to be New York City, Los Angeles, but middle of nowhere, Wyoming. Really? Can anything good come up? I'm, I'm not about to go there because last time I did something like this with a state, I got emails, I got letters, so I won't name a state. All states are created equal. Here's the point. Nathaniel found hope in the most unlikely of circumstances. In the most unlikely of circumstances. What is your Nazareth? Do you ever find yourself saying, what good can come from this situation? Can anything good come from my life? Can anything good come from this circumstance? You ever say that? What is your Nazareth? Well, if you place your trust in Jesus, you should not have a Nazareth. Why? Because you wouldn't be saying, can anything good come from this situation? Because all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. You don't have to have a Nazareth. You don't have to wonder because you have hope in Jesus. Jesus gives us the hope that we're looking for. We have a future. We know where we're going. We're going to heaven. And even if this life is miserable, which it's not, we have hope for the future. But even though we know that, even though we know that, we forget, don't we? We have stress, built up stress and anxiety, all these different things. And so what we do is we usually keep it to ourselves, right? We can't tell our friends. We can't tell our family. And even if we do, we tell our friends, we tell our family, we keep it to ourselves, we bottle it up, and we don't give it to the one that really can handle our problems. It just boils over. The Bible says anxiety in the heart of the man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. You dwell on those things. Anxiety, when it says that word anxiety, it literally means like this wave tossed to and fro in the sea. You're just agitated. You're dreading life itself. That anxiety causes depression. You're keeping it within. You got to bring it to God. He is the word. He is the living word. Listen very carefully. When the world makes you sad, the word can make you glad. When the world makes you sad, the word can make you glad. Focus on his promises. Focus on his word. Focus on the Bible. 
Because that's where you're going to find truth. That's where you're going to find Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Oh, wait, I'm, an, I'm a child of God. I believe in God. I'm trusting in God. And I know that he has a purpose for even the, the darkest of all situations. And you might say, I believe, help my unbelief. That's great. And what Jesus would say is, okay, come and see. Just like Philip told and repeated the words of Jesus to Nathaniel. You don't believe it? Nathaniel didn't. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He says, come and see. Maybe that's what you have to do tonight. Maybe you don't believe that God can really work in your circumstances, in your life, in your situation, in your, in your sinful activity. But God says in his word, come and see. Now what Nathaniel said is, Jesus found him. He says, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Jesus just commends him for just going up. Even in the midst of his doubt, he took the action to go and fall after Jesus. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? Which is, duh, of course, he made you. But remember, because we forget this so often, remember that God cannot forget about you. As much as we can forget about God, God cannot forget about you. Why? It's impossible. He knows everything. God is omniscient. The minute you say that God doesn't remember me, God doesn't, you know, he forgot about me, you're saying that God isn't omniscient anymore. That's impossible. It's literally impossible for God to forget about you. What does the Bible say? Psalm 139 says, How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot even be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. Think about this. God is in love with you. He cares that much about you. He is literally in love with you. I'll never forget this illustration that Andy Dean gave us a long time ago, before you guys were in junior high, when I was still in high school. You ever think about like when you're really in love with someone, you're like, you're sitting at your desk at school, you're carving like, I don't know what your names are, but just Z plus X, whatever your initials are, and you're just a little hard over it and stuff, and you're, you're just thinking about them all the time, you know? God is so madly in love with you. Maybe you even write it on your hand, and that's not what I wrote on my hand. It's just other things, so don't think I'm creepy. But you're so madly in love with them that you're always constantly thinking about them. You're writing them their names everywhere. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 49 says, Yet Jerusalem says, The Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. Never can a mother forget her nursing child. Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hand. That is how, how madly in love that Jesus is with you. In conclusion, Jesus says, you marvel at this? Just because I said I, I saw you under the fig tree? Really? That's going to impress you because he has his divine knowledge to know yeah, I saw you under the fig tree. How did you know that? Oh my gosh, you really are the Christ. He says, you're marveling at this. You will see even greater things than that. But ask yourself, everyone here has to ask himself a question. What is it that I really want? Do I want to follow Jesus? Do I want to follow after the world? What is it that I really want? Jesus would say, come and see. Put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in the one who promises to deliver you. 
You know, there's a difference. If you have a parachute and you say, I trust parachutes. I, when you, whenever you take your first jump out of an airplane, when you're doing, it's just random jump, no. When you're doing skydiving, you take your first jump out of an airplane. The first time someone else packs your chute. And it's one thing to say, you know, I believe in the greatness of a parachute. That's not the question. Oh, I believe that's technologically advanced and it can do all the things to save me. The question is, are you willing to jump out of the plane with a parachute on, on, on your back? Are you going to trust the parachute to save you? There's a difference between saying, I, I believe in the greatness of God. I believe theologically there's these ideas out there that God's that's right. You know, he's the Trinity and all these things. He died for me. Are you willing to put your faith in Jesus? Are you willing to make the best decision that you could ever possibly make? Following requires action. Maybe you're not sure. Well, ask the people that gave up everything. Ask Paul. Hey, Paul the Apostle, was it worth it to follow Jesus? Uh, yeah, I was, you know, whipped. I was beaten. I was shipwrecked. It was worth it. I count all things as lost for the sake of knowing God. Ask David, was it worth it? Hey, Daniel, was it worth it being trapped in lions? Oh, yeah, it was worth it because he actually shut the mouths of lions and I made it out alive. Miracle. Awesome. Hey, Moses, was it worth it with all those persecutions? You, you thought you couldn't even talk and, and go and deliver people. Oh, yeah, it was because then I did these 10 plagues and these miracles and brought people out of Egypt. You know, it was really frustrating in the middle, but I made it. I finished the race. Jim Elliott says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You ever think, what if I don't follow Jesus? We're always thinking like, well, what's it going to cost me? Well, I know it's, it's going to, I'm going to have to sacrifice this. I can't do this anymore. And that's going to really stink. And I'm going to miss this. What if you don't follow Jesus? The Bible says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Count that cost. D.L. Moody said, what is the price that you put on your soul? It's the sin that keeps you from God. That's the price you pay. The sin that you're not willing to give up. But Jesus says, you will see greater things than these. And when you give up something to gain Christ, you gain someone who owns everything. He's the maker of the universe. You're not really giving up anything. David Livingston was a, a missionary to Africa. And he went through a lot of persecutions. He's one, he was known as one of the greatest missionaries that ever lived. And this is what he said. All these are nothing when compared to, with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. He says, I, I gain things. I'm not making a sacrifice. I'm exchanging it for greater glory. So what do you want in life? Every person has a choice on, on how their life will be lived. Are you tired of making bad decisions? Are you tired of making mistakes? Well, following Jesus is the best decision you could ever make because it's based on a leader that doesn't make mistakes. He's perfect. I'm going to close with this. Soren Kierkegaard, one of my favorite philosophers, has this parable. Parable of the stars. He says there's a horse-drawn carriage that's going in the middle of the night and a guy is carrying a lantern so that he can see where he's going. He needs to see the road. He needs to be safe. He needs to be comfortable. And so because he has a light so close to him, he's safe. He's preoccupied. He's got his thing going. He sees the road and no problems. 
But in the same way, when we keep that lantern so close, we're so busy, we're so preoccupied with this world, the busyness, even good things. We're comfortable, we want to be safe, don't want to lose anything for Christ, because what if I lose it? I'm not comfortable anymore, and it just makes me feel weird. When you keep that lantern close to yourself, you lose something, which is the view of the stars. By keeping that so close to yourself, you never see the greater things that God has for us. Maybe you're afraid of being uncomfortable. Maybe you're afraid of that sacrifice. But Jesus would say, come and see, because you will see greater things. God has a greater plan for your life than what you could ever possibly conceive for yourself. If you got a plan, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be that. God says, I got something better. Why? Because I'm God and I made you. And I'm going to give you a new identity. I could be your Messiah, give you a new identity. There's plenty of evidence for me. And lastly, there's hope that's only found in me.